This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... <coughs> I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days, so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Shiloh. And I'm Dr. Scott. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the vintage case of the Clifford Clinton bombings. Hey, Dr. Scott, how are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. We had another, like, kind of the, the inaugural season of a of events like we had last year, right? I know. I'm, yeah, we had such a great time at Parapod Festival this last weekend. And I feel like we're totally in live show mode now. And we can't wait oh, yeah. for these next two events on our calendar. Yeah, a bunch of really interesting people with a lot of different experiences and perspectives on life. I thought that was a really valuable place place to be and some really kind people and yep. very friendly and accepting of us, which I thought was really nice. So we're just over a month out from our very own live event here in LA on May 20th at the Historic Heritage Square Museum. We're going to be doing a live show inside the Lincoln Street Church, which sits on their property and is just the coolest venue. We're discussing a very infamous location and crime case out of Los Angeles alongside the LA Meekly and Holly Weird Paranormal Podcast. Yes. And then just a few weeks after that, we're going to see you in London at CrimeCon UK. You can still get tickets to that and join us across the pond with a 10% discount on your tickets with the promo code CONFIDENTIAL. We are also going to be hosting a meetup with Justin and Aaron of Generation Y on Friday, June 9th to kick off that weekend. So please stay tuned to our social media for that info. Everything's just about everything is set in stone. We're just locking down the location. So that will be announced probably by the time this episode comes out. So getting more excited. Very cool. In our last episode, we presented and explored four cases involving adults pretending to be someone that they're not. 
So what did they have in common? They're all in school settings, but the range of motivations and the range of ages that they attempt to imitate are wide. And while the situations are somewhat humorous on the surface, we show how things can go wrong very quickly, affecting the safety of the student body. The subject has been very much in the news recently with two unusual cases, and it led us down a bit of a rabbit hole in how the act itself is due to that range of motivations. So if you haven't already had a chance, please check out episode 134, School Fakers. Yes. All right. So let's get into our episode for today. I think it's one of my favorite times of the month is our vintage case. I hope it doesn't take us forever to record this because this is going to be a tongue twister. (laughs) You and I are so used to saying Clifton's Cafeteria, which is an amazing place we'll tell you all about in a little bit. But it's a combination of our subject's name today, Mr. Clifford Clinton. His two names he had to go and name his downtown establishment after by combining them. So I'm going to try not to trip over myself today. (laughs) But what we're doing is we're really highlighting a pillar of LA history. We discuss so many garbage humans on this podcast that I hope it's interesting for our audience to talk about one of the good guys and the attention on his life because he dared make 1930s Los Angeles a better place to live. So a little bit of a different story, even though don't worry, there's crime and corruption and all that you could want. Definitely a lot of corruption. No big trigger warnings for you today. Our case deals with attempted murder and bombings and threats, but no overt violence. Even the bombing itself was was sort of a, a yeah. showpiece, not really a, an attempt at killing somebody. Nobody dies. <laughs> right. All right. So let's go back first. This story, again, takes place in 1930s Los Angeles, the decade that was also the backdrop to the Sphinx dentist murder and the Babes of Inglewood murders, which also was the same exact year, 1937, that these bombings took place. But you'll also hear about some other characters that we've covered. We have so many vintage episodes now, Dr. Scott, that we're starting to see a lot of overlap here with characters. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. But yeah, let's learn more about Clifford before we get to the vicious attempts on his life and those around him. So Clifford E. Clinton was born in 1900 in Berkeley, California. He was the third of 10 children and his father was a missionary and owned and managed a restaurant in San Francisco called Denence. In 1905, Clifford's family traveled to China for the first time for his father's missionary work, and they were financially supported by their restaurant back in California because it was doing so well. However, they were prompted to return to San Francisco in 1906, of course, to rebuild after the devastating San Francisco earthquake and fires. So the family ends up returning to China in 1910, and they gave their time working at a Christian orphanage for the blind. Clifford was now 10, and he was really able to to comprehend much more about daily life in China, especially for the poorest families. And as a 10-year-old child, his job was to go around each morning to the neighborhoods and collect the blind baby girls that had been left outdoors to die. So, you know, culturally at that time, and as we know, beyond, girls were considered more expendable than boys. There was also immense hunger and starvation in China as a result of the Boxer Rebellion, which was a very particular time of anti-foreign and anti-Christian uprising that led to a lot of chaos and disorder. Clifford really was so deeply moved by the experience, and he made a boyhood vow that if he could ever do anything to help hungry people, he would do it. The family returns to California in 1912 after the violence in the region really just grew too dangerous 
dangerous for them to be there. So they come back. Fast forward a little bit, Clifford ends up leaving high school early to work in one of his family's now multiple restaurants in San Francisco. And then he also briefly served in World War One. And upon his discharge from the service, he married Nelda Patterson in Berkeley. And even though he started as just a storekeeper in the family businesses, he eventually rose to supervising manager of all six restaurants by 1925. So Clifford and Nelda moved to L.A. in 1931 with their three children to start their own restaurants. But these were going to be a new kind of restaurant with Clifford's passion for charity at the heart of this venture in the booming city of Angels. In the summer of their first year in L.A., they opened the Clifton's Cafeteria, the Cafeteria of the Golden Rule. What an incredible name. It was located in downtown L.A. at 618 South Olive Street, which is now just a parking lot next to the L.A. Athletic Club. Despite what you may think of them, cafeterias were very trendy in the 20s and 30s. And with this cafeteria, Clifford applied a principle of practical Christianity, and that was to never refuse a meal to a person who could not afford to pay. The written policy printed out on every receipt was, quote, regardless of the amount on this check, our cashier will cheerfully accept whatever you wish to pay, or you may dine free. So remember, this was in the beginning of the Great Depression, so you can imagine how many of the residents of LA would fit into this category. And in the first three months the cafeteria was open, 10,000 free meals were given out. It was later renamed Clifton's Pacific Seas. There's a reason for that, because it featured jungle music murals, artificial palm trees, a waterfall, and controlled rainfall every 20 minutes. So it was the OG Rainforest Cafe. (laughs) Totally was. And the the pictures from that time are really phenomenal. Like it was was unlike anything anybody had done. The following year, he opened the Penny Cafeteria in the basement of a building at 3rd and Hill Streets. And in this location, it was open for about two years. In 1935, Clifford then opens Clifton's Brookdale Cafeteria at 7th and Broadway. So he's really Mm -hmm. just trying to hit downtown LA because it's growing so quickly. And it was the largest cafeteria in the world at that time with over 40,000 square feet and five floors. It was really the crown jewel of all the cafeterias. It had a redward. It was really the crown jewel of all the cafeterias with an interior, a fake but very realistic redwood forest of trees, babbling brooks, taxidermy animals, and mysterious alcoves in which to dine after choosing your food from the cafeteria line. Yes, and Clifford's policy of courtesy and service also extended not just to who could or could not afford to pay, but also to customers of all races. As another sign of the times, this generated some customer complaints as it was a time when most restaurants in metropolitan Los Angeles discouraged patronage by Blacks, Latinos, and Asians. Clifford turned one of these complaints as well as his response into a leaflet called the guest voice, which was available at all of his restaurants. So I kind of love that he put this customer or this guest on blast because in this leaflet he printed where the guest wrote, quote, I have always liked Clifton's, but yesterday while having lunch, two Negroes came and sat at my table. After that, the food tasted like sawdust. I like the Negro people, but I refuse to eat or sleep with them. I will hereafter go elsewhere where they do not have Negroes, end quote. So then the rest of the leaflet is filled with Clinton's response, which is this, quote, democracy brings many people together who may not enjoy close social contacts. It is for us to weigh the benefits of democracy against its alternative in which a majority class or 
quote-unquote master race could outlaw minorities. So far, a few nations have chosen the undemocratic way of life. We are at war with those nations, and there is no discrimination as to the races among those who are offering their lives for our American rights and freedom. To promote peace, justice, order, and harmony, our laws and constitution make it unlawful to discriminate. We are left with two choices. We can obey the letter and spirit of the law, which we believe also expresses the Christian solution of our problems, or we can violate the law and the Christian conscience of our republic. Frankly, we know only one line of conduct consistent with our conscience and obligation as a citizen. It is our duty to serve all who enter our doors and conduct themselves within their legal rights. If the ruin so often predicted is around the corner, then we prefer to be ruined doing business in accordance with our obligations as a citizen. This is our policy. We survive or perish according to which point of view has greatest appeal to the people. Somehow we have faith in the people, end quote. Putting it out there. Unbelievably inspiring. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I know. What I know. beautifully constructed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. So. As with all things, you know, that was 100 years ago now, close to it. And there's only one location remaining, and that's at mm-hmm. 7th and Broadway. And you can go there today as it's almost completely refurbished. And it's now called the Clifton's Republic. Their website is amazing and gorgeous yes. and beautifully set up. And it really captures the magic of the first version of his restaurants, Mm -hmm. gives you a great overview of the whimsy lounges and the experiences they can offer. And according to some recent Yelp reviews, some of the lounges are still being remodeled. I've been to a couple of uh, sort of holiday lunches and dinners for work since we're so close down there. Yeah, There's an immediate atmosphere when you walk in. You're just like it because it also it's magical and very cool, but it also feels 
like 1930s. It yeah. really feels like 1930s. The food is good. They're super cool uh, souvenirs, like not your run-of-the-mill stuff, like really interesting, like little ceramic things. But I've given as, as gifts many times. And there's a speakeasy. Like there, it's amazing. <laughs> you like, there's this hidden door. They're like, oh, there's a speakeasy back there if you want to try yeah, it out. Very cool. I... I have not been there at all since it's been refurbished, which was they reopened right before COVID, I think, with total refurbishments, right? Yeah. Well, not right before. It was a couple of years before COVID. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then closed, of course, during that time. And I think there's still, like I was reading, remodeling some areas because when you go on their website, like there's these different themed lounges, right? So, and then the speakeasy. So previous to all of that, though, I had attended a Twin Peaks event there, which was super cool. It was an art exhibit of all this Twin Peaks art, but then you have the redwood trees in there. And so you feel like you're in the middle of a forest, little reminiscent of the Pacific Northwest. But I love to hear the stories from my dad and my stepdad talking about visiting as children because my grandmother worked downtown. And then, so my dad would visit with her as like a treat. And then my stepdad would tell us about going there to the cafeteria to eat and that he always remembers there was like a little like pirate's treasure chest where all the kids could go and pick out like a little toy to take home. And it's oh, one of his cool. fondest memories of, you know, the family taking an outing over to downtown LA, which is very, very cool. But yes, the the website's adorable. You open this website, you're going to feel like you're on like even better than a Disney website. And you're just going to want to go there, but they hold a ton of cool events. So we should have one there one day after this That's live show idea, in May actually. is over. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so let's look at what Clifford did next because he took his do good attitude and actions to the next level when others really started recognizing him for his strong moral compass. And in 1935, a member of the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors asked him to inspect food operations at the LA County General Hospital. And being in the restaurant business for most of his life, he accepted the task and discovered significant food waste as well as corruption at the administrative level. And he wrote up his findings and made recommendations essentially for them to trim the hospital budget. We all know that big entities with big budgets don't like outsiders coming in and poking around. And as you'll recall from previous vintage episodes, again, this was a particularly corrupt time in Los Angeles and publicly pointing out corruption had its consequences. As a brief recap, in the 1930s, corruption was really the norm here in LA. Gambling and prostitution establishments operated freely and often under the protection of law enforcement or other city officials who were on the take. I mean, bribery was just a sort of a way of life that seemed to extend all the way into the offices of the mayor, the district attorney, and the police chief. So yeah, it's really not a surprise that after his findings that the hospital came out, Clinton's own establishments suddenly become visited on a regular basis by city officials and cited for every minor mm -hmm. violation that could possibly be found. The restaurant business is already rife with uncertainty even to this day. But Clifford didn't back down from the intimidation. He decided to bolster his presence in the city even more. And he was able to get himself appointed to the county grand jury. That's a very big deal yeah. at that time. So it's almost like, hey, I'm not going to play your grift game. I'm going to jump and leapfrog over uh -huh. your heads into a supervisory position. I'm not too sure how grand juries work back in the day, but apparently they could investigate certain known crimes or at least influence the investigation of these kind of quote unquote city problems. Now, once he was in this position, he was able to encourage the grand jury 
to focus on vice issues in LA. So gambling, prohibition, prostitutions, yeah. you know, all the fun <laughs> stuff, right? So, but he really turns into the morality police here. And yeah. I think it was really incredibly smart strategy for him to take because he was hitting on things that as a person of faith mm -hmm. and being known in the community as a person of faith, it's not like city officials could shut him down that, oh, you're just, you know, whining about stuff. He could gin up the whole town if he wanted yeah. to, which yeah. I think was his, his uh, point. Yeah, for sure. So in April of 1937, I'm kind of giving you a timeline at this point now to see how these things flow. He takes this position obviously very seriously, but what they do is they he begins to document the locations and the activities very specifically and just to a T, <laughs> all, of, all of these issues of the, the locations, the activity of the brothels known at that time as houses of ill fame, which I kind of love, bookmaking operations, Tango parlors, pinball joints. I, I did not know there was such a thing as a, a pinball joint. I had yeah. never heard of that. It sounds super fun. <laughs> but yeah, yeah it it's. Does. I know. It's like. Ugh. Yeah, but it's for gambling and underground casinos. Yeah, but how great would it be to have a tango parlor? I'd love that. I know. I we know. could start. We could start a legitimate tango parlor. Okay. Okay. And have some pinball uh, machines in the background. I don't know. Yeah, sure. We'll just keep it, but we'll keep it above board. There's not going to be okay. any, any graft or grift going on. So as we mentioned, legal enforcement was often lacking because cops took payoffs to look the other way. So it was quite a shock hmm. to the corrupt officials when Clifford began feeding this information to a couple of people. And one of them was his friend, Judge Harlan Palmer. And he was also the publisher of the Hollywood Citizen News. Palmer would then publish the names and locations of these illegal operations, which in some cases caused them to close down. But some other grand jury members pushed back, maybe because they had their own self-interests or business interests intertwined with their roles. So what did Clifford do? He started his own Citizen Independent Vice Investigating Committee, otherwise known as CIVIC. And they, they were really good at their job because CIVIC's investigations revealed hundreds of brothels and gambling houses, over a thousand bookie joints, and thousands of slot machines in various locations. However, the grand jury refused to publish or even accept a report from CIVIC. So Clifford just published it himself. <laughs> this guy is unstoppable. He is. I mean, I think that's what money and privilege could get you back then. I mean, in a good way, for sure. Yeah. When these corrupt entities won't do the right thing, he just said, fuck it, I'll do it myself. Exactly. So he put out a publication called the Minority Grand Jury Report, and it was scathing. He absolutely did not hold back. The report alleged the district attorney, county sheriff, and the chief of police, quote, work in complete harmony and never interfere with the activities of the important figures in the underworld. Now, that is a really prime choice of words. I mean, mm -hmm. that was branding. That was social engineering right there. It's really powerful to use positive terms such as harmony and never interfere to mock that collusion. Yeah. Like it was smart. It was showing that we're aware of this. And I'm sure that the public like really responded to it. It led to the grand jury probes really becoming a thorn in the side of L.A. Mayor Frank Shaw. Clifford believed the original grand jury was stacked with Shaw loyalists. Mm, OK, OK. So if he thought retaliation was swift before over that whole little hospital food thing... It really got bad after this report came out. All of a sudden, Clifford's real estate taxes were 
mysteriously and significantly increased. And then when he went to obtain a permit for a new cafeteria, which obviously he was successful in bringing money into the city, it was denied. And then erroneous lawsuits started to come in blaming his establishments, like the slip and fall crap, food poisoning, all of those little ticky-tacky things. Additionally, Los Angeles Police Chief James Two-Gun Davis began to view Clifford's activities as a threat to his buddy, Mayor Shaw, who he was in cahoots with, with all of this corruption. And reportedly, the department, the, the police department's Metropolitan Special Investigation Unit then began monitoring Clifford and installed illegal listening devices on his home telephone. So in early now fall of 1937, Clifford reportedly met with Dave Hutton. So Dave Hutton was the ex-husband of Amy, sister Amy Semple McPherson, if you guys remember, of course, of the Angelus Temple fame and from our vintage episode 123. So Hutton arranges a meeting between Clifford and a woman named Reba Crawford. And Reba was actually the associate pastor at the temple and supposedly kind of a bitter rival to sister Amy towards the end, which wasn't something we had gotten into. But in this meeting, Clifford essentially just collected testimony from her about her connections and dealings with Mayor Frank Shaw. And when they had this meeting, they met in Clifford's Los Feliz home office and the spy squad investigators were listening with these illegal surveillance devices as they discussed the mayor and some of Clifford's findings. But Clifford didn't let up in his pursuit of making the city of Los Angeles a more righteous place to live. And that's when things started to turn violent. Yeah. So Clifford Clinton and his family lived in a Spanish colonial revival home at 5470 West Las Feliz Boulevard. That's right at the curve where Western turns into Las Feliz. It's an absolutely beautiful part of town. Yeah. It was really grand at the time that house was built. Like all of these enormous houses, a lot of them are are still there. And just after midnight on October 29th, 1937, an explosion thundered through the neighborhood as a blast came up through the kitchen floor from the basement of their home. Fortunately, the children were asleep on the second story and no one was hurt. The bomb was described as a tin can pineapple type bomb attached to a floor joist in the basement that blew a large hole through the outside wall of the house and up through the kitchen. Eventually, police chemist Ray Pinker and LAPD Detective Chilson, a bomb expert, examined the fragments and determined that it was filled with chloride of potash, not gunpowder. Chloride of potash is like a fertilizer-type bomb-making material. After the bombing, Clifford received a phone call from a man that spoke in a quote-unquote Italian-like voice <laughs> saying that this little puff-puff was just a warning of worse things to come if he didn't lay off. Yes. I thought you were going to do an Italian-like voice. I don't know how you say puff, puff. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't enough to work with. Yeah, puff, puff, how do you do that? You need, I need to give you more to work with next time. So yes. I want to read you a little snippet from the Los Angeles Evening Citizens News. Their tagline is a favorite newspaper of an open mind. <laughs> and it's from the night, at, well, after the bombing, because it was after midnight, but it's a perfectly snarky little step back in time, I think. Now we shall be entertained with a lot of theories advanced by the Los Angeles Police Department as to who placed the bomb that partially destroyed the home of grand juror Clifford E. Clinton and endangered the lives of seven persons. And, of course, 
All that we shall get out of it will be theories because the bomb was doubtlessly placed by some of the several criminals who are kept on the police force at public expense in order to defend the operations of the gangsters of the underworld. The bomb was placed because Clifford E. Clinton single-handedly has done more than 3,000 officers of the law to frighten the criminals of the underworld and to greatly curtail their activities. Yeah. Hmm. Big words. Well, the day after the bombing, the L.A. Times reported that Clifford's personal publicity representative, Hanson Buck Hathaway, alleged that he was on his way to Clifford's home after he learned of the bombing and was intercepted by three men in a black sedan. They kidnapped him for a period of time, drove him around the neighborhood, and then released him, warning him to watch his step. Two different neighbors had reported seeing two men in a green sedan in the driveway of the Clinton house before the explosion. But in the aftermath of this bombing, at least one member of the grand jury came out publicly in support of Clifford and condemned the dastardly deed as an inappropriate way to retaliate against Clifford for his views and actions in the community. The police and DA basically spun their wheels, chasing down some silly leads to no immediate avail. Well, no surprise there. Yeah, not putting a lot of effort in. Right. After after the bombing, Clifford sent his own message, as we would only expect from Clifford at this point. <laughs> Clapping back, he says, they are not going to stop me. They can blow up the entire house, but I will keep on. However, in an interesting turn of events that I found in an old newspaper clipping, a few weeks after the bombing, Hathaway resigned as Clifford's publicity agent and claimed that Clifford was trying to stay in the news and had even had conversations with him in which Clifford mentioned a, quote, good old-fashioned bomb. Mm. That's suspicious, but like it doesn't necessarily track with all of his other activities. I agree. I read that and I was like, hmm, who got to him and paid him to say this? Right, <laughs> exactly. Or they, they scared the crap out of him and he's like, oh, okay, let me just let me sneak out of this in any way I can. This episode is made possible by PwC. It's getting hot out here. Moving the mercury can help move your business. PwC helps turn sustainability theory into real-world action. Reduce your carbon footprint while increasing transparency in net zero commitments. Start with reporting to identify your climate risks and reinvent your business. Create a more sustainable business and a stronger planet. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. Suspicious, but also 
be suspicious of that suspiciousness because the violence continued. And this time, it finally got some due investigation. A few months after the incident at Clifford's home, another bomb exploded in the car of a man named Harry Raymond. Raymond was a former LAPD detective and the former San Diego PD police chief. And by this time, he was retired. He was working as a private investigator in Los Angeles. And it's believed that Raymond was doing his own investigating into LA corruption. But ultimately, it came out that he was probably feeding this information to Clifford when the attack occurred. Interesting. So car bombs can be really brutal. We've all seen the gangster movies, but amazingly, Raymond survived with over 100 shrapnel wounds. And after the bombing, newspapers across the country ran photographs showing him calmly smoking a cigarette while doctors removed shrapnel from his legs. This one attempt on a former law enforcement professional actually had a huge impact on life in LA. It began the downfall of the LA era of corruption. LAPD attempted to steer suspicion towards the mob, but the civic group turned its investigation to the LAPD spy squad. LAPD Captain Earl Kinnett head of the spy squad, was overheard at work saying, that's too bad. Next time we'll do a better job. Oh boy, red flag. Yeah. Yeah, big red flag. Eventually, the mayor would be recalled and many LAPD leaders were terminated. Captain Kinnett was actually implicated and brought to trial for the bombing. Prosecutors alleged that he had ordered the bomb to be planted in Raymond's case, as well as the goings-on of secret spy squad that conducted illegal surveillance on Mayor Shaw's opponents. But get this for another twist in the events that bring our vintage episodes together. During the trial, Jack Parsons of Caltech was called as an expert witness after he built a replica of the car bomb. There's a very famous photo of him on the stand holding the replica and, of course, looking very dapper, as he always did in his crazy occult, scientific, drug-using ways. He actually died not that long after he testified at the trial when he blew himself up. Bound to happen. (laughs) He was really a a thought leader, but he took a lot of chances. Yeah. Astonishingly, Captain Kinnett was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and sentenced to two years in prison. Two members of the spy squad were also convicted for their involvement. And during the trials, investigators implied that both bombing incidents were at the hands of individuals well-ensconced in the LAPD. The curtains were finally pulled back on L.A. city corruption, and this encouraged many L.A. underworld figures to move on. And where did they move on to? This is right when they all moved to Vegas. Yep. To think that L.A. could have been (laughs) Vegas if it wasn't for good old Clifford Clinton. (laughs) That's a good thing. Yes, for sure. So Clifford's commitment to duty continued for many years, as expected, and in many more acts of service. A month after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, Clifford, at the age of 41, enlisted in the Army and said he would do anything to serve his nation. After the war, he returned to the Southland, and he actually ran for mayor of L.A. in 1945. He came in second out of... 15 candidates that year. And since politics wasn't going to be his thing, he returned to what got him sort of in the charity business to begin with, focusing on a little concept called world hunger. He enlisted Caltech biochemist Dr. Henry Borsuk to develop a food supplement that would provide proper nutritional values while costing no more than five cents per meal. And of course, Clifford offered to 
fund this research with his own money. And the result was the development of something called multi-purpose food, MPF, a high-protein food supplement that could be made for just three cents per meal. He went on to create Meals for Millions, a not-for-profit organization that would go on to provide millions of MPF meals to people in over 60 countries around the world. What a guy. Clifford died just before his 70th birthday in 1969. So sadly, left way too early. But he left quite the legacy in the City of Angels. A quote of his goes, Los Angeles has given me all that I have, and I am obligated to give Los Angeles everything that is in me. I thank you so much for mixing this up this week with a show topic about an inspiring and driven individual that just wanted to make the world a better place. I mean, here's a guy with a solid moral compass that intersects with his own religious beliefs. And those beliefs were not necessarily congruent with what was going on politically or socially at the time. It was pretty progressive. But again, thank you. What a great topic. Yeah, you know, this is, I like doing something different, but, you know, this was a story that I'd always heard kind of snippets about in little bites. You know, when we did our downtown LA walking tour, we stopped outside of Clifton's cafeteria and Chris told us, you know, some of the main nuggets of these stories. But going back and doing the research to really see his inspiration for all of the stuff that he did in his life was just kind of cool. And I mean, really, like, we probably owe a lot to him because you and I could be sitting in the middle of the MGM casino right now of Los Angeles. (laughs) It's not worse. Yeah, yeah, that could have happened. So I'm I'm glad it didn't. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Fun times. So thanks, everyone. We have a really cool topic picked out for you for our next Forensic Psych episode. Get your tickets to all of our events coming up still. Those are always on our live events page on our website, as well as in our link tree on social media, direct links for you there. And we can't wait to see more of you in person coming up. And with that, we will see you next time on LA. Not so confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. Sincerely, thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Earcult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons app attribution license. Please check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled behind the couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live stream scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA 
not so confidential so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we would be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast so you can be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join us next time on LA Not So Confidential.